Hey, everyone. Before we get started, I just want to note that today's episode about facial recognition technology is a developing story. Things are moving quickly and may have changed even since we recorded this. Okay, here's the show. Hello? Hello? Hi, Deb. Hey, how are you? (laughs) On Wednesday night, I called up Deb Raji. Deb works on identifying bias in artificial intelligence, and she audits companies for how their AIs perform. When I called her, Deb was at a loss for words. Oh, my gosh. (laughs) Yeah, things are moving so quickly. Oh, my gosh. Every few minutes, her phone was lighting up with texts and calls from friends and colleagues. Because Deb studies bias in facial recognition software. And this week has been one of the most eventful ones of her career. IBM said that it is getting rid of their facial recognition programs. The company is also calling for a public debate on law enforcement's use of it. On Monday, IBM sent a letter to Congress saying it was getting out of the facial recognition business. The letter also urged lawmakers to look at how technology is being used for mass surveillance and racial profiling. Amazon says it is temporarily banning police and law enforcement from using its controversial facial recognition software. Then on Wednesday, Amazon announced that it, too, was backing away from facial recognition, putting a year-long pause on letting law enforcement use its platform. As the week went on, it was like a dam broke. On Thursday, Microsoft said it wouldn't sell its facial recognition technology to police departments. People like Deb, who've been working on this for years and tangling with these companies, were blown away. Amazon is like the most belligerent. Like, they're the meanest company I've ever dealt with, to be just frank. Like, they're just so mean. They're just so aggressive. They put us through literal hell. Us, in this case, means three computer scientists behind a groundbreaking study on facial recognition. Deb, Timnit Gebru, and Joy Boilamwini. If you've heard about how these companies' facial recognition technology isn't accurate on darker skin, especially darker-skinned women, it's probably because of their work. Their initial, initial response was incredibly defensive and incredibly dismissive of me and Joy's work, but also the position of other people that had attempted to audit or to critique their use of facial recognition and their sale of facial recognition. So to go from that to a position where they're actually willing to forfeit the sale of their technology for a year feels like this very important win, which is why my phone is blowing up because people are very excited about that. Um, And they know how involved I've been in this story since the beginning. Do you think, like asking you to sort of you know, step back and look at this from 35,000 feet. And that may be impossible in this moment. Yeah. Is this a turning point in the kind of big conversation about facial recognition? I definitely think this is the turning point. I think this is hopefully, you know, the first set of dominoes. The fact that IBM made that public stance and then Amazon followed is so important. That is already enough to shift the public conversation around this topic and hopefully also shift the perception of policymakers. Today on the show, the fight over facial recognition software, how it's weaponized against people of color, and why tech companies are hitting the brakes now. I'm Lizzie O'Leary, and this is What Next TBD, a show about technology, power, and how the future will be determined. Stay with us. (laughs) 
This episode is brought to you by Discover. When it comes to your finances, Discover wants you to know they are the credit card that is always there for you. With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, that means no more waiting for, quote, normal business hours just to get a hold of someone. We are talking real service from real people whenever you need it. Get the customer service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Back in the summer of 2017, before she started her research on algorithmic bias, Deb Raji was working at a company called Clarify, a computer vision startup. And that's where I got introduced to machine learning and AI, and I kind of entered the research world. And I remember sort of the first time I saw my first face data set, noticing right away that there was a lack of diversity and representation in the data sets. And I was trying to have this conversation with people in my office, but also just more broadly. I was trying to say like, hey, I think this is a problem. But the response was always like, it's so hard to collect data. Why would we think about this extra dimension of representation? Like, this is so hard to do. Like, what you're asking for is something that um, is so difficult. And like, this is the way it's done. And everyone's accepted this. Like, that was sort of the response I was getting. At the same time that Deb was noticing this lack of representation in the data set, Another computer scientist had noticed it, too. Hello, I'm Joy, a poet of code on a mission to stop an unseen force that's rising, a force that I called the coded gaze, my term for algorithmic bias. Joy Polamwini is a researcher at the MIT Media Lab. And back in 2016, she gave a TED Talk about her work. Algorithmic bias like human bias results in unfairness. However, algorithms like viruses can spread bias on a massive scale at a rapid pace. So, yeah, finding Joyce TED Talk was this important moment of like, oh, my gosh, <laughs> there is another person that cares about this. And I reached out to her sort of exactly in that moment and um, ended up working with her afterwards. The project they worked on, along with Timnit Gebru, is called Gender Shades. And we talk about like how it's probably not a coincidence that her, me, and Timnit Gebru, who are like all Black women, we're like, I don't think it's a coincidence. We're, we're all the people that noticed this at the time. The researchers knew that these facial recognition programs with limited data sets were being used by law enforcement agencies around the country. So inaccurate results could have real-world consequences. Can you describe the work you did and what it showed? Gender Shades is a black box audit of commercial AI products. So these are tools that companies today sell and clients currently use. So nothing that was audited was experimental. Everything was in the wild, in use. This is mass market stuff. Yeah, exactly. What if we just tested these products on a benchmark that was representative with respect to gender and race. What would happen? What would we discover? And what we discovered was that when you test these products on darker females, it performs 30% worse than it did on whiter, on lighter males. Um, and that was a, the really big discovery was that these commercial products were not actually things that worked well for everybody that they were selling it to. And 
that coupled with the reality that they were selling this technology or pitching this technology to ICE at the time, um, to different intelligence agencies, to local police departments, was really alarming. It was something that demonstrated the fact that, you know, facial recognition at this point is disproportionately being used to sort of monitor and surveil minority communities as part of this law enforcement pitch, but also not performing as well on that, those communities, which is obviously this very alarming safety risk. What do these companies do with the police? What are these contracts for? In some cases, it's something reasonable, such as attempting to shortlist a group of suspects for a crime. So they might have security footage and a bunch of faces in the security footage, and they'll try to identify who within their mugshot database fits or aligns with the faces that they see in the video. So that's a lot of what they do is this idea of face verification or matching a face that I have in my data set to a face that I know is from a, a suspect in a crime. And if I have a huge data set, how do I do that quickly and efficiently? So in the case of like shortlisting suspects, it feels not as bad. But in a lot of cases, they might also use it on sketch photos where um, if they don't have a picture of the suspect, they'll ask, you know, victims to describe it to someone that will sketch it out. And then they'll, set, they'll put in the sketched photo and use that to search through their list of mug, their their database of mugshots. And, wow. Yeah, and you can imagine just how many false arrests happen as a result of that. Even though there was research from people like Deb that showed major flaws with the technology, all the big players in the field kept their products on the market. This continued until Monday, when IBM announced they were stopping their program entirely. So this week, IBM says they're no longer going to offer or develop facial recognition technology. And I guess I wonder, as someone who is immersed in this and studies it, if you look at this announcement differently than a regular person reading the headlines. So since we've been watching these companies effectively for a while, I know a lot more of the backstory leading up to that announcement. It's not a spontaneous decision. I don't think it's as bold as IBM is sort of set out to look right now. So right now it's for, for a lot of outsiders, they're just kind of like, wow, IBM abandoned all of these important big contracts and just spontaneously made this decision. And because it's happening at a moment of high racial tension in the States, but also just a lot of reckoning with respect to the racial history of the States, it seems as if like, oh, IBM, you know, had this realization in light of protests and everything that's happening. Um, but the reality is they've actually been working towards this position for a long time. And this is the most financially beneficial position for them to take at this moment. How so? So IBM was called out in gender shades and they were the quickest to respond. Within four months, they had released a new product in response to the, the revelation that there was this huge disparity in their performance on different demographics. So then they tried this idea of like, let's build a big data set to fix it. Following that, they were exposed because they had to use Flickr images without any consent in order to collect that many faces. And it ended up sort of being this embarrassing situation for them where the conversation around privacy and consent was completely neglected. After the privacy scandal, IBM then argued that their facial recognition technology could be used if there were strong regulations around it. But critics weren't happy with that either. So to kind of like summarize, they, they started off being called out for their bias, trying to fix the bias, and then being called out for their privacy, trying to fix the privacy, and then noting like, oh, that's only restricted to these particular use cases, and then being called out for 
that restriction. <laughs> um, so they're kind of at a point where, you know, they probably weren't doing a lot of business. They definitely weren't a big player and they needed to pull out. Amazon, though, is a different story. The company is one of the biggest players in facial recognition technology. And their software, called Recognition with a K, was being used by police departments around the country, from Florida to Washington. Deb says that out of all the big companies, Amazon was the most resistant to reform when it became clear that there were bias problems with its algorithm. And you can see hints of that resistance in the way Amazon announced its moratorium on Wednesday. There's a really interesting difference to me when I read these statements from these two companies. IBM writes this letter to Congress kind of about leaving the market, and, and they're kind of offering all this information to members of Congress. Amazon puts up a blog post that basically says, we're not going to do this for a year, and we're curious what Congress is going to do. It feels like they sort of kicked the ball toward um, lawmakers and just sort of said, okay, your turn. Yeah, but they're not kicking the ball. They're choosing to play a different type of game. So their their strategy is really... um, probably to focus on the regulation conversation because with IBM's announcement, they're aware that that conversation is, is going to shift in favor of some kind of ban or moratorium or restriction. And maybe it could even just be uh, them creating space for themselves to figure out what's going to happen with respect to regulation before they actually invest more in the product. Hmm. The reason why I'm still happy that the moratorium is a thing is because this is very premature technology. It's not something that should really be out there at all. So for it to not be sold or pitched to police departments is a huge win because that protects every person that that police department was going to use the tool on. Well, one thing I'm curious about is in the wake of the protests that we've seen around the country, Amazon's own employees and employees of Microsoft as well have called for their companies to stop working with police forces on facial recognition, on other contracts. Do you get the sense that Amazon was listening to its employees? Yeah, so there's sort of this ongoing campaign with respect to um, pushing for the restriction of facial recognition use. So Amazon really stood out as this target within this broader Hmm. campaign against facial recognition. There had been letters uh, by Congress members. There had been a campaign by ACLU, an audit by ACLU. We had done an audit and we had published it as a peer-reviewed paper against Amazon. Um, Shareholders had attempted to have a vote against the use of facial recognition. Employees had signed a letter and still they sort of refused to budge. So I feel like the fact that they budged right now is accumulation of so much advocacy that preceded that. I want to talk through kind of the intersection of racial justice and facial recognition technology, something you have obviously studied a lot. As you said, one of the issues is that the data sets are biased and that they are kind of at worst inaccurate. But I guess I wonder if they were wholly accurate and very good at identifying Black people in particular. Yeah. Isn't that also a concern when you're talking about the sale of these products to, say, police departments? Yeah, for sure. I think there's a danger when things don't work and there's a danger when things do work and get weaponized. Hmm. So for example, um, you know, there's a lot of cases in immigration where false matches happen all the time. The wrong people get deported. False matches happen in the criminal justice system with mugshots being matched with the wrong person in a security camera. 
those are situations where um, a, an individual is in danger because the technology does not work. And then there's also the case of weaponization, right? Like if you have the perfect facial recognition model, all the data is perfectly encrypted. There was an apartment complex in Brooklyn and the landlord, in, uh, the landlord had decided to install a facial recognition system um, in the apartment to monitor, quote unquote, monitor the mm-hmm. residents. Like explicitly weaponizing that tool to um, sort of harass them and monitor them and uh, you know, potentially even build his eviction, uh, you know, cases of eviction. So um, in that case, you know, they really lobbied hard to get rid of facial recognition because they understood that whether it works or not, this is not for me. This is not built for my benefit. This is being weaponized against me. There is a lot of discussion, and I assume after this week there will be more, about banning facial recognition technology altogether. Um, yeah. Several municipalities have done it. San Francisco, Oakland, a couple places in Massachusetts. All of this and talking to you makes me wonder, is there a way to use facial recognition that won't be dangerous to someone? I think no. (laughs) Given the current paradigm of how these models are built, it necessitates this massive scale privacy violation. (laughs) And this is something that I think sometimes people don't always realize is that your face is the equivalent of a fingerprint as a biometric. I think we would all be alarmed if we found out that there were massive data sets of fingerprints that people were uploading, you know, as part of their like social media profiles and, you know, just publicly and freely to the web. They're just casually uploading fingerprints, like fingerprint data. Um, I think that would be like an alarming, like, oh my gosh, don't upload your fingerprint data. That's so, you know, that's so crazy. Why would you do that? But we upload our faces all the time to the web. And there's so much data about each and every single one of us available with respect to this identifiable biometric. So for me, I'm, I really feel like there's, there's no use case that can really justify setting up the infrastructure required to build these models. Amazon said explicitly that they're going to continue to employ their facial recognition technology yeah. for missing children, human trafficking. In your eyes, is that a meaningful distinction? I, I just can't imagine a use case where facial recognition is the only answer. Like, there is no way. Like, when people say, like, finding missing children, I'm like, there's other tools, other methods to do that. You don't only need facial recognition. And in fact, there's, there's some research that people are now undertaking where they're finding out that facial recognition as a tool for sort of, like, law enforcement is not actually that effective for the reasons I mentioned, where people don't use it properly, where it ends up leading to a lot of false arrests, but not necessarily a more effective law enforcement strategy. And yet, when you look at what these big players are doing, it feels like the horse is, you know, already out of the barn. How how do you view the role of someone like you in making sure that this stuff is used responsibly? Is it about making sure it works and is trained on a large and diverse data set or making sure there aren't privacy violations or something completely different? We've gone through a period of, does it make sense to make these models better or should we just burn it all down? Right now we have a bunch of tools that don't work on multiple axes, are threats to safety on multiple axes um, that are currently widely deployed, like today. So can we just scale it back and just stop in terms of how widely it's being used? And then 
if it is something in the future that is decided upon as like, okay, here's a version of the technology that we want to use for whatever particular use case, then we carefully deploy it within that axis. It shouldn't be this free-for-all that we currently have where anyone can just take this tool and weaponize it against anyone else. Deb Raji, thank you very much. Thanks for having me. Deb Raji is a technology fellow at the AI Now Institute at New York University. That's our show. TBD is produced by Ethan Brooks and hosted by me, Lizzie O'Leary, and is part of the larger What Next family. TBD is also part of Future Tense, a partnership of Slate, Arizona State University, and New America. If you missed Monday's episode of What Next, you should definitely go back and listen. Mary Harris talked to Dr. Howard Markell, one of the doctors who came up with the idea of social distancing, about the delicate questions of protesting during a pandemic. Mary will be back on your feet on Monday. Talk to you all next week.